Good morning. Welcome. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene. I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. And I've got a question for you. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever experienced betrayal? And if so, the big question is, what did you do about it? We're going to look at that a little bit today. We find ourselves in the rest of the story, the series that we're doing, where we're looking at the entire Bible, not just the parts we like or the verse of the day. We're going a little bit, just a little bit, beyond that. We find ourselves in a place where 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are kind of-ish running in parallel. The Bible does that sometimes, repeat stories with different perspectives, not contradictions, but just different angles on the story, and it gives us a fuller picture. I've told you in the past that sometimes there are large chunks of text that are not in others, and that's kind of where we are today. It can be a little bit confusing. Last week, for example, we saw that in 1 Chronicles 20, the whole story of David and Bathsheba fit right into two verses, between two verses. Today, 10 chapters are going to fit in between two stories. The thing about the Philistine giants and David's defeat of Rabbah. And I know this can be confusing. So, I made you guys a chart. (laughs) I did not draw that. And you can tell, you can tell that I didn't draw that because Cartoon Gene would look a little younger if I drew it, and he'd have bigger biceps. So anyway, I did make the chart part, and if you're having a hard time seeing it like I am, (laughs) you can download the app, and it's right there in the app, so you can look at it, and maybe it'll unconfuse things, but if you see the red... That's 1 Chronicles 20 and 1 Chronicles 20. All the stuff that we're going to do today is in between those two things. And then I'm projecting out to next week a little bit. So I hope this is helpful and doesn't make it more confusing than it already is, defeating the whole purpose of making the chart. Anyway, say bye to Cartoon Gene. So <laughs> I mentioned the app. Download it at C3 in your pocket. There's a lot of really useful material in there. We spend a lot of time working on it to help you guys um, get educated about the Word of God. So today, we're going to see that things will get very, very personal today. We're going to concentrate on 2 Samuel, all this stuff that's not in 1 Chronicles. We're looking at larger portions of text Now, in the past, we've done certain series where we'll do it a chapter at a time, and that's okay. And some people do, like, a verse at a time, and that's not as good. You can do that, like the verse-by-verse teaching, once you understand the whole story. And most Christians don't get that. They'll do the verse of the day. And I like the verse of the day. It's helpful. I'm glad that people are reading God's Word at all. But... It's the best way to get things out of context. It really is. And so I'll give you kind of a picture of what that would look like in modern day. It would look like if we watched merely 10 seconds of a movie at a time. 
about how long it takes to maybe read a verse of the day, right? 10 seconds or so, it's a long time. <laughs> 10 seconds at a time of a movie. Imagine doing that. How long would it take you to get through the movie? Like two years, something like that. And if we're being honest, most Christians don't even read the Bible in two years, right? So 10 seconds of a movie at a time, and you're quoting the movie lines to people who've seen the whole movie. They're like, what are you talking about? And this is what it's like to be a pastor. They do the verses and stuff, and I'm like, doesn't mean that at all. You know, it's usually the opposite, which is really the funny part. 10 seconds of a movie at a time. I'll make it worse. It would be like watching 10 seconds of a movie at a time all over the place, like fast forwarding to one hour and 15 minutes, going back to the half hour part, just jumping all over, right? Isn't that what most Christians do? They jump all over the Bible. So what we're doing here is we're looking at larger portions of text. I like to give you the whole story first so you understand it, and then we kind of dial it in at Bible study a little bit and go over some of the finer points. We did First Peter a couple of weeks ago. I think I mentioned this last week, read all the way through it, and there were so many people, even longtime Christians, going, oh, like I get it now because we read the whole thing. It takes a little time, and it can be convicting for a lot of Christians because we don't have any problem sitting down and watching a movie for two hours. Right? So we need to start thinking about that. And so we're challenging you. That's what we do here at C3 Church. Some people don't like it, but too bad. Anyway, <laughs> what I'm going to do is summarize this for you because this is 10 chapters. It's a lot of information. But here's the thing. There are some finer points in here that need to be attached with the story. What happens a lot of times is people just tell like the story here, but something happened here that caused that story to happen and it gets totally left out. And it's like, eh, I get it. But when we do the whole thing in these big chunks, you go, oh, that's who that person is. And that's why they did this. It's kind of like watching one of these Netflix series with my wife, you know, I just hop in, you know, in the middle of it, and she's like, and I'm like, well, why did they do it? Just shut up. You know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to watch. So that's what's happening here with the Bible. You really have no idea the significance of the people, the dynamics, and so that's what I want to help you with this morning. And I want to encourage you, come to Bible study if you're free. We stream it online, too. A lot of people watch it online. Watch it. Dig in a little bit. Grab a Bible, whether it's on your phone, wherever it is, I'll take it. <laughs> read it. Check my work. <laughs> he is. But, you know, read it. Go through it. Get some of these details and, and just dig in a little bit as much as you would one of these Netflix series, right? God's Word, people. So today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 13 through 23. I'm going to summarize the last three chapters very quickly for you and encourage you to dig in on your own. But we're going to look at the rest of the story here. So again, last week, David and Bathsheba. It's a very popular account. So we're following that now. Today we're going to see a fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy, what he told David. He got one of the punishments almost immediately. Now there's going to be two other punishments for this affair, and they're all in this story. Right out the gate, we get one of them here. So we're in chapter 13 now, and we're looking at three of David's children, and they're not all fully related. So you're dealing with a half-brother and two full brother and sister. Amnon, this is David's oldest son. I'm going to try to make this kind of very easy to understand and get really complicated. Amnon is his oldest son. Then you have his third oldest, Absalom. 
They're from different moms. Absalom's sister is Tamar. You may be going, Tamar, I think I've heard that name before. You have. It happened in Genesis. There was another woman named Tamar. It's not the same one. Also, though, equally messed up story. <laughs> it means palm tree, just as a side note. You needed to know that. So here's what happens. Amnon is really depressed. He's going around looking dejected. And he has a cousin, Jonadab. And Jonadab comes up with a good idea after knowing what's going on here. Why do you look so dejected? Why should the son of a king be moping around like this? Well, I'm in love with my sister. Kind of weird. Half-sister, but still weird. So Jonadab gives him an idea. You ever get a cousin give you like a good idea and then you do it and it's not a good idea. I see a lot of people nodding. Anyway, he's that cousin. He's that guy. Right? So give him an idea. He says, well, you know what? Pretend like you're sick and then ask your dad to let Tamar serve you some food. Why? Well, we'll find out. So he does it. He plays sick. Tamar comes to serve him. He sends the servants out. He's in bed now and she's going to serve him in bed. And he propositions her. And she resists. She says, no, that's stupid. So he has his way with her. He forces himself on her. And immediately after, that love turns, love turns to hate. He hates her. And he sends her away. She protests that too. It's like, oh, what are you doing to me? And now she's in mourning. And she goes to her full brother, right? So it's a half brother, full brother Absalom's house. Tells him about it. Everybody's kind of upset, but what's really strange is that nobody does anything. Nothing happens. This is a real crime here. Nothing. Weird. So some time goes by, two years goes by, and Absalom is celebrating. It says that it's the sheep shearing time. So in these agrarian cultures, you'd celebrate like a harvest or something like that. You have a successful harvest, lots of sheep to shear, and they have a feast. And so Absalom asks his dad, King David, he says, let all my brothers come and feast with me. And the king's like, ugh, that's going to be too much for your household or whatever. Like, no. But he keeps pushing him and he says, what about just Amnon then? David says, why Amnon? It's like, did he forget? And he says, okay, we'll let all the brothers go. So they have this feast. All the brothers go. Absalom gets Amnon drunk and tells his servants to kill him in revenge. This happens. All the brothers flee. But messengers get to David first, and they tell him, all of you, Absalom's killed all your sons. But David goes into mourning. This is crazy. But then Jonadab, the guy whose idea this was in the first place, lets him know, it's kind of a funny twist in the story, no, 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 it's just Amnon. He did this, Absalom did this in revenge for what he did to his sister Tamar. So what happens is Absalom takes off, he escapes, and he stays with his grandfather Talmai for three years in Geshur. If we turn the page, we see that Joab, he knows that David's upset. Some time goes by, these three years, and he's upset. He wants to be reconciled with his son, but of course he's convicted a little bit, right? Killed his other son. So this is crazy. David's in a really rough spot. But Joab, remember he's the general who's always not so great all the time, not a nice guy. Well, he comes up with a plan to get Absalom back. So he's like, oh, we should get Absalom back. And he goes really a long way around to make this happen. He gets a wise woman from Tekoa, it says, and tells her to tell a story. 
So what she does is she makes up this story. She gets in mourning clothes. So she's pretending she's mourning. And she approaches David. Now, it's important to remember that oftentimes elders and kings, they'd meet at like the town gate. It's a central place. And they judge cases all the time. And so this is what David's doing. He's judging cases. He's at the town gate, probably judging this case. But she comes up to him like a widow in mourning clothes, all upset, and says, King, I've lost one of my sons. You see, they had a fight in a field, and one of them killed the other one. And now, my family wants to execute my only remaining son. I don't have any other heirs. My husband's dead. Don't let this happen. So she's pleading for mercy. So he says, okay, you know, I'll take care of it for you. It's all good. Fast forward a little bit, and she says, you know, by making this judgment, you've condemned yourself because you've deprived Israel of one of your sons. Remember, Absalom's in line here to be king. <laughs> kind of funny because he goes, did Joab put you up to this? He kind of knows. Interesting, right? So she's in a tough spot, or she thinks she is anyway. So she says, you're as wise as an angel of the Lord. Compliments him. <laughs> you get killed. He just criticized, she's just criticized the king. So he says, now, nah, okay, fine. Sends for Joab. Joab's like, oh, I finally found favor with you. He says, yeah, go get Absalom. That's fine. But here's the thing. He is not to be in the palace around me. So he's still enacting judgment on him. He's still punishing him. You go to his house. He's not in exile, but he's not fully restored yet. Interesting. So what happens here, and you've got to remember this. This is a part of it looking at the larger portion of text. What happens here is it gives this kind of like sidebar description of Absalom. And it's funny. He has some unique traits. It says he's really handsome, very, very handsome guy. And he only cuts his hair once a year. And that's because it weighs five pounds. It's a little heavy on him. Right? So he cuts his hair once a year. Remember that. So this is a guy who's, he's like basically like Bon Jovi. Right? So there you go. I'm old. Anyway, <laughs> it says he has a daughter named... Tamar. Interesting. Well, yeah, Bon Jovi cut his hair. I forgot about that. Anyway, <laughs> I'm old. Anyway, he has a daughter named Tamar, not the same Tamar, named after this sister who was violated there. And it says he has three sons. He's not allowed to see David. And what he starts doing, he starts trying to pester Joab, this general. He's pestering him, pestering him. And Joab's not paying attention. So what does he do? He lights his barley field on fire. What else? That gets his attention. So Joab comes to him and he's like, look, this is the same thing as being in exile. I want to be reconciled to my dad. Joab speaks up for him to David and now David lets him into his palace. And so just kind of that chapter ends that way. If we turn the page, chapter 15, Absalom, very handsome guy. He's reconciled to his dad. He's now led into the palace and all that, all right? But he's killed the heir to the throne, David's oldest son. Now, Absalom decides to start playing the judge. He gets up early and goes to the town gate every day, and he starts judging these cases. Oh, sounds like you have a really good case here. Too bad I'm not the king or I'm not the judge. I you know, basically is schmoozing. I judge in your favor. And when they bow to him, he's royalty, he's a prince. No, 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 no. He picks them up and he kisses them. So he's really working it. He's doing this for a long time. It's kind of interesting. It's easy to just glance over this. It says he's doing this for about four years. 
a really long time. Some older versions say 40 years, but math doesn't really add up. Four years this is going on. He's constantly schmoozing the people. Finally, he asks his dad, he says, you know what, I made a vow when I, before I came back here and was reconciled, that if I got reconciled and could come back into Jerusalem, I'd make a vow at Hebron. Paying attention, Hebron was the original capital city for David before he took over Jebus and it becomes Jerusalem later. So he's going to go there, but while he's there, Absalom that is, David lets him go. While he's there, he starts sending out messengers and starting a rebellion. It's not good. He calls for one of David's advisors. Ahithophel is his name, fun to pronounce. So he's getting some of David's people to side with him. He's going to start this, incite this rebellion. Now, what's interesting, David hears about it, and he flees Jerusalem. Why? The stated reason is that, well, for our safety and the safety of the city. He wants to protect the city. If it goes under a siege, you could get all wrecked. And so he leaves. But, remember this, he leaves his ten concubines, those are like secondary wives, behind to take care of the palace. Remember that as well. So now you get this procession, all these people mourning as they're leaving Jerusalem. They're weeping and mourning. It's a, it's a bad deal. You know? And there's all these people that are loyal to him. Interesting sidebar, 600 men from Gath. You remember King Achish when David was hiding with the Philistines from Saul? Same number of people. They're loyal to him. He says, ah, you're foreigners. Go back. You're fine. No. They stay loyal to him. So all these people are loyal to David. They're marching out of the city. They're weeping. It's this bad scene. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, they're carrying the ark appropriately, giving sacrifices and things like that as they leave town. But David says, you know what? They get a certain distance across the Kidron Valley, and he says, go back into town. Go back into Jerusalem because he's got a plan. He's like, you're going to be spies for me. We're going to find out what's going on there. So David's thinking. He's got his resources. He's going to use them. He sends the ark back and the priests back. He runs into this guy, and this will be important later, Hushai the Archite, at the Mount of Olives. Remember that place if you can. It's going to be interesting, some foreshadowing here. He runs into him, and he lets him know the plan. Zadok and Abiathar are there. You're not going to come with me. You'd only be a burden. You're going to go back because he's an advisor, and you're going to counter Ahithophel's advice. And then we're going to spy. We're going to find out what's going on. So David's got people in Absalom's inner circle. And what's going to happen is the priest's son, Jonathan and Ahimeaz, they're going to go back and forth as like little messengers. So that's going to go on. If we turn the page, we see that as David continues, he experienced blessings and curses. Ziba, if you remember him from last week, Mephibosheth's servant, he blesses him with some food. Where's Mephibosheth? This is Saul's grandson. He's like, no, he stayed behind. Remember that. Shimei, there's this guy who curses David. It's a crazy scene. He's throwing rocks at the king and his soldiers and cursing him as he leaves. And David has a very interesting response. They want to kill him. No, don't kill him. The Lord told him to do it. Maybe the Lord will bless me. For receiving these curses. David has an interesting attitude. So now, Ahithophel, back in Jerusalem, advises Absalom, David's son, to the rebellion. First piece of advice, get your father's concubines, those 10 concubines, and sleep with them out in public. 
put a tent on the palace roof and sleep with your dad's secondary wives. Yeah, bad. <laughs> yes, nuts. The fulfillment of the prophecy. So what did, what did he say to David? Nathan the prophet. So the sword is always going to be through your household. Well, we see that happening clearly. And someone else will sleep with your wives, but not in private like you did with Bathsheba in public. And so this, you just let it, wow, yes, let it sink in. This is massive betrayal upon betrayal on top of betrayal. Think about it. His son rapes one of his daughters. Then another son kills the son who did it. Then that son stages a rebellion, chasing you out of the city. Then sleeps, well, I hope none of you here have more than one wife, sleeps with your wife. <laughs> Nuts. Totally crazy when you think about it. So if we turn the page, Ahithophel gives more advice. It's really the better advice. He says, look, let's get 12,000 men. We'll go get David. We'll try to take him out, sniper type of attack. And then we'll bring back all the troops. Everyone will be reconciled to you. Absalom's not going to go in Ahithophel's plan, if you're paying close attention. Well, what does Hushai the Archite say? Remember, he's that spy counselor. Uh, he says, I don't think so. Ahithophel's wrong this time. Not a good idea. You see, David's angry. He's like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. He's going to get you, and then your men are going to be afraid of him. So I think we need to muster the whole army of Israel. Now this, at first, would sound bad for David, but it's not. Take some time to do that, and that gives enough time for the spies to get the messages to David so he can make his moves appropriately. Interesting sidebar, we can talk about it at Bible study. There's the sons of the priests, they have to hide in a well, and a couple hides them. It's a quick sidebar story. So David flees even further to this town, Maenaeans, where eventually he goes to kind of hide out. And it's interesting because Ahithophel, the advisor who had the good advice, hangs himself. Another quick sidebar story. Why? Well, he knows if he's a really smart guy, that Absalom followed the bad advice. So their side's going to lose. He might die anyway or get blamed for it. Interesting name, Amasa. He's appointed general of Absalom's army. It's going to be important. Names are important here. He's appointed general. It's interesting because he's David's nephew. And Joab, the other general, David's general, his cousin. So a lot of people are related here. We'll see what goes on. So remember Amasa too. So now we have this big battle in the forest of Ephraim. It's all going down. They say, David, you stay behind. We don't want you out in this mess and getting killed. So you can see he's getting the good advice. Absalom goes out. Mistake. Bad, bad error on Absalom's part. David orders them. Deal kindly with my son Absalom. That is the officers or the generals. Deal kindly with him. So now we have this battle that ensues and 20,000 people lose their lives. It says, more lose their lives to the forest than to the sword. That's interesting. So it's this really dangerous place, I guess. It's almost alive. And indeed, what happens is some of David's troops see Absalom. And Absalom tries to bolt, tries to get out of there. He's on like a mule or a donkey. But it says his 
hair gets caught in a tree and the donkey keeps going. Man, I wanted to cut his hair once a month. <laughs> What's really interesting as a sidebar here is that I told you guys in this series, and if you, you weren't here for it, you can go back and watch like the intro to this series and you'll see I explain it to you. A lot of people think that the Bible of the early church was in Hebrew. It's actually in Greek. The Old Testament of the early church is all Greek. It's all continuous flow. Makes sense, logic, right? The New Testament's in Greek. They're quoting the Greek Old Testament. Why would they do two different languages? It's all in Greek. And it really reveals some interesting stuff if you can read the Greek. It actually says, not head or hair, it says head. His head got caught on a tree. So he was stuck on a tree between the heavens and the earth. Think about it. He's a son of David. What is Jesus called a lot? Son of David, hanging on a tree between the heavens and the earth. Not that Jesus is anything like Absalom, but there are a lot of prefigures of Christ, especially in the Greek version. Just want to point that out. Kind of nerd out there for a minute. Anyway, the, <laughs> the messengers see it. They go back to Joab. Like, we, see, we saw Absalom because they remember, they heard what was said by David. Deal gently. So they don't kill him. He's like, why didn't you kill him? I would have given you 10 pieces of silver or a hero's belt. They're like, if you give us a thousand pieces of silver, we're not touching Absalom. David will kill us. So Joab says, enough of this. He grabs three daggers in this really super overkill move while he's hanging, Absalom's hanging there, stabs him in the heart, and it says 10 of his young armor bearers finish him off. Kind of overkill, isn't it? Interesting. So then some messengers go back. You can read that part of the story. There's an interesting thing there. I don't have time for it this morning. They tell David, David goes into deep mourning, deep mourning. Absalom, my son, oh, Absalom, my son, on and on. Yeah, the second one of his sons who's dead now. But Joab finds out about it and he says, cut it out. The people, they just want a victory for you. Yeah, he's your son, but he's the enemy. No, get back at the gate, stop this. And so David agrees. There's a dispute between Israel and Judah about welcoming him back, but they do. They welcome David back. He's on his return from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, all the people that were mean to him are approaching him. <laughs> Shimei, the guy with the rocks, <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm the first to welcome you back, king. David's kind to him. Interesting, his response in betrayal. Mephibosheth shows up. He's like, where were you this whole time? Well, Zebel deceived me, his servant. I didn't just stay behind. He left me there. He's crippled. So he just left me there. I'm loyal to you. And David doesn't know who to believe, so he splits it 50-50 with him, Saul's inheritance. He's not sure who's telling the truth, but Mephibosheth says, give it all to Zeba. So maybe he's telling the truth. But David's kind to all these people. He could have stayed behind and betrayed him. Now, there's an argument over the king between Judah and Israel. It's going back and forth, and it sets the stage for this guy, if we turn the page, named Sheba or Shiva, if we're reading a Jewish version here. He starts a rebellion. So think about it. If you're David, you're like, really? Again? Yep. Down with the dynasty of David. And so he blows a ram's horn. He gets all of Israel against him. Now, he appoints David a mesa. Absalom's old general, the enemy general as a general. Why? Diplomacy. Remember Abner? 
David's really good at it. And so he appoints him general. He also wants to distance himself with what Joab did again. Right? Joab killed his son. So he's like, eh. He makes Joab like a secondary general, a mace of the top general. Round up the troops. You have three days. But Amasa doesn't do it. So now David has to default to Joab, who killed his son. Okay, go out. So they all go out, but there's a point at which at Gibeon, they meet. And again, remember Abner. Joab doesn't like Amasa. They're cousins, but he's a rival general. Same type of thing. He pretends to drop his sword or drops his sword. And as he goes to pick it up, Amasa's near him. Hey, cousin. He goes to grab him by the beard. Actually, this way. He goes to grab him by the beard. He stabs him in the stomach, just like he did to Abner. But this time, it's really gross. It says his guts all spill out. So the soldiers are like passing by, looking at him. So they ditch the body, and they go after Shiva. They arrive at a town named Abel, and there's a wise woman there. Says, whoa, don't destroy the town. They're ready. They got the siege towers out. They're going to go for it. Why destroy it? And says, ah, talk to the elders about this. They said, we'll give you his head. We'll throw the head over the wall. And so they throw Shiva's head over the wall. Joab secures the victory. Now, I'm going to summarize quickly for you because I want to get to our application. 21, we see an account of avenging the Gibeonites. We can save that for Bible study. There's a backstory there. Remember the giants. Now, here we are in first here we are in 1 Chronicles 20, towards the end. 22, there's a song of praise. David is a psalmist, and so that's in here, and I show you where it lines up. I believe Psalm 18. Chapter 23, we're going to save that for a couple weeks. So here's a good example of like the Bible jumping around a little bit. It gives us David's last words, but David's not dead yet. We're going to see more accounts about him, his mighty warriors. And now, if we get to next week, we're in alignment. 1 Chronicles 21 and chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. Some details. When David leaves Jerusalem, upon hearing of Absalom's betrayal, this rebellion, as he ascended the, ascended the Mount of Olives, he's weeping. He's weeping. I told you they're mourning in this procession. 2 Samuel 15.30, David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he too went to the Mount of Olives and wept. Jesus is anointed at Bethany, and then before the Last Supper, it says this, Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest who arranged to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. If we keep reading, Mark 14, 32. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, my insertion there, that's where it is. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, 
not mine. Like David or Jesus, we too often experience betrayal from within our inner circle, our family. There's nothing that we can do to reverse it once it's done. But the question is, how should we respond? What do we do? You see, like Absalom or Ahithophel, Judas died by hanging. And like Amasa, Judas's guts spilled out. You see, our betrayers will cause their own demise. Their pride will catch up with them, and they will end up hanging by their own accomplishments, like Absalom by the hair. For our part, we must trust the Lord will deal with it for us. Let them be undone by their own doing. And know in the end, it is Jesus who will deliver the justice. It's not our job. If you read the book of Romans, you may know this. Good example of why you really need to sit down and just read the whole book. 16 chapters. It's not too bad. You can read it in a pretty short period of time. Maybe in two hours, like a movie. In those 16 chapters, if you read it in full, you get the point. Paul has a reason for writing. There's a point. Paul doesn't sit down and say, ooh, I think I'm going to write the greatest theological work ever written. Not even close. Hebrews is probably closer. It's not the point. The point is, like pastors today, Paul has churches that are bickering. They're fighting with one another. So in this case, it's the Gentile Christians versus the Jewish Christians. It's not the Republicans or the Democrats, but it could be. I'm better. I have the more righteous position than you do. No, I'm better. I have the more righteous position than you. That's basically what's going on. And so he spends the first three chapters saying, you've all sinned. All y'all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of you who has a religious or political affiliation that makes you better than the person sitting next to you. You're wrong. They're wrong. It's all wrong. The world's messed up. It's always been that way. Read Romans chapter 1. Sounds like he's talking about today. Exactly the same stuff. He says, I don't care. You're all wrong. That's not a popular thing to hear in church, but it's the thing that all the writers of the New Testament are constantly saying to the church over and over and over. And you're wrong. You're wrong. We serve the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom here. All this is garbage. It's all going to be wiped away if we're believing what it says in the word of God. It's not permanent. Our permanent home is there. So Paul spends 11 chapters doing this. He gets to 12, and it turns. Therefore, everything I just said, therefore, therefore, we are to be a living sacrifice. That's how we worship. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. A lot of Christians think worship is like singing a bunch of lies in church on a Sunday. It's not. 
It's loving people implicitly, dying for them. That's worship. It says that in the Old Testament too, Isaiah 1, Amos 5. Take away from me the noise of your songs if you're in sin. People don't know that. Romans 12, read it yourself. That's worship, being a sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God. And you know what else? Do not be conformed to this world, yet be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's important. That's for all of us. Do not be conformed to this world. Stop fighting with everybody, but be transformed as a living sacrifice by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we, and I'll continue, that is how we love our enemies. That's how we love our enemies, by being a sacrifice for them. Our enemies. Chapter 13, authorities, pay your taxes. says that. What did Jesus say? He's just repeating stuff Jesus said. That's it. Why is that important to you? Why are you greedy? I don't get it. 14, love and honor those you disagree with. Doesn't matter, even if it seems like it's important. Let it go and just love people. That's it. So Romans 12, 14, going back, says, bless those who persecute you. Sounds like Jesus, right? It's a little redundant, actually, in the New Testament. Bless those who persecute you. Persecute, what that means? What they're going through? Who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think that you know it all. I think a lot of people need to hear that. <laughs> don't think that you know it all. Never, never pay back evil with more evil. Never. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do things in such a way that everybody can see you're honorable. Do all that you can. Do everything you can to live in peace with just the people that agree with your political affiliations. It does not say that. Everyone. Everyone. Do all that you can. Everything possible to live in what? Peace. Peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35. I hear this a lot. What are we going to do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> love people. I don't know. We just love. I don't, you know what I mean? It drives me nuts if you really know this. I don't try to be at peace with everyone. Everything I say, everything I do, that's what God told me to do. What do you mean, what are we going to do? Read your Bible. That's the first step. Because it says this like over and over and over and over again. Hyper redundant. What are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. Keep reading. Romans 12, 20. If your enemies are hungry, instead, by the way, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Want to get revenge? Love them like crazy. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. 
Remember David and Shimei, the guy throwing rocks. As he's cursing David, David amazingly says, that's from the Lord. Do we ever consider our part in this? Where we might be wrong, where we might be getting a punishment. I don't know. No, everybody else is wrong. This is nuts. He's the king. This guy's throwing rocks at him. Maybe it's from the Lord. You know what else he says is amazing. 2 Samuel 16, 12. And perhaps the Lord will see that I'm being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. Wow. 1 Peter. We're wrapping up. 1 Peter. We went through 1 Peter two weeks ago at Bible study, and I read the whole thing. I think I said this already. Got the point of it. You cannot read 1 Peter and get the takeaway all the way through that we should be enacting revenge on people or talking back or being rude. You can't do it. There's just no way to read through it. It's so, and everybody at Bible study, if you were there, it was like, I heard a lot of like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. So background, context, fiery trials, the early church, it's getting worse Old Nero's burning Christians alive. I've told you this in the past, probably last week, but it's worth hearing, right? We've got to hear things a few times to get it. They're burning Christians alive. What do we do? So Peter tells them, listen, this is all people. Your kids are being taken from you and burned. What do we do? Well, here's what you're going to do. <laughs> Suffering means you're being molded into the image of Christ. Remember, he died on a cross and suffered, so he's your example. That's just the first thing. So what have you got to complain about now? Sets the tone, and then he says some things we hate. He says, honor all authorities. Honor the emperor. Who's that? The guy burning you alive. Honor him. Honor all authorities. That's not an excuse. In other words, blow their minds. And there were so many early church fathers that gladly went to their deaths and won people over to Christ, like Roman soldiers, Philippians, right? Paul's in prison. The whole Roman guard's hearing about the gospel. This is a good thing. It's awesome that I'm in prison here because I'm just going to keep preaching the gospel and all these Roman soldiers are turning into Christians. Yeah, it worked. Not that the Holy Roman Empire was a great thing, but it worked. They eventually converted. It took a few hundred years. That's Jesus' strategy. He keeps going. Like, slaves, that's crazy. It says this, 1 Peter 2, 18, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you to do, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. You patiently endure unjust treatment. Then God's pleased with you. Of course, not ever going to be the verse of the day. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beating for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Doubling down on the point, just in case you might have missed it. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. You do not get off the hook. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Do we get the point? I hope so, because I'm running out of time. 
and my throat is a little sore. But he continues, same thing with wives, same thing with husbands, on and on, all Christians. 1 Peter 3, 9, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Have we heard that? Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. This is the word of God. Don't. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Sound familiar? We're getting redundant here. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. We must love like Jesus. We must trust that he will bring justice. David writes a lot of the Psalms, and so sometimes these intersect and overlap like 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel. And so here we have a place where David is writing about his betrayal. We get a window into his heart, how he's processing this. What is he going to do? So he writes these songs, these poems about it. They're beautiful. They become worship songs in the early church. So this morning, again, I would like to end by praising God with a psalm this morning. Psalm 3. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me, so many are saying God will never rescue him, but you, oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy mountain. I laid down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord, rescue me. My God, slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. And all God's people said, amen.